Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you, uh, David. That was really uh, touching. Um, it's great to be back here in Abu Dhabi. Um, and, um, you know, I'm giving the presentation mostly in English. Uh, for those of you who prefer to speak Arabic, you can always ask me questions afterwards. Sayyidati, Usadati, marhaban bikum, welcome. And I will start my presentation by saying Bismillah Rahman Rahim. Um, as we do before we eat, we pray, we, <laughs> we, um, we start um, anything, uh, that's how Muslims start. Uh, my story is very simple. Um, I'm just, I'm not a theologian, I'm not uh, an Islamic uh, specialist, I'm not an Arabic linguist, but I am a practicing everyday Muslim. Um, and I would like to think that, um, you know, the, the kind of Muslim I represent is, you know, probably what most people are. We do our best. We pray the five prayers, we pay our zakat, we sum, we, uh, we fast Ramadan. We do the best we can uh, in the service of God. I was raised as a Muslim. This is me at the age of, uh, maybe if we can have the lights down just a slight bit so people could see. I'm not sure if that's possible. But um, yeah, so this is me. Uh, I was raised as a Muslim by my parents in Canada. That's where I was born and raised, um, and was, was going back and forth to Egypt uh, often, uh, where, my, from, from where my dad's side of the family is from. This is my son, uh, Saeed, uh, also raised as a Muslim. And, you know, this is, uh, this is not typical, but, uh, you know, I always fight with him to go to the Friday prayer. But uh, this is a, an off chance where he was actually, you know, prayer, you know, um, uh, praying with his friends. I said, this is wonderful, Saeed, just next time wear pants. You know, that's all you have to do. <laughs> um, so I'm a Muslim. And um, for the most of my life, uh, I kind of left Islam on one side. So the right side, you know, the, the right side of my, my, my brain. And on the left side of my brain, I was also a scientist and was practicing scientists fairly independently of, of my belief. Um, and this, you know, just kind of doing uh, what... Um, you know, probing the inner secrets of super soldier ants. This is a super soldier ant, which I'll tell you about a little later on. This is a normal worker. Um, we were doubling the size of ants. We were to, to understand the, the, how we can uh, grow cells and, and understand the growth and repression of cells. We were skipping around the sky islands in Arizona, uh, trying to understand, uh, you know, how uh, basically evolution works. But in the background, while I was being a scientist and a Muslim fairly separately, sort of in two different ways, um, I, you know, in the sort of the background, uh, in, the, in sort of the social sciences, there was a, there's a real debate and discussion and controversy going on. I realized um, shortly as books were coming out that, you know, actually we're in the midst of one of the greatest um, sort of um, intellectual debates of our time. Books um, are coming out. This is a famous evolutionary biologist, Richard Dawkins, wrote The God Delusion. 
You've got Jerry Coyne, another famous biologist, um, basically saying that science and religion are incompatible. At the same time, um, other people from the Muslim world, Harun Yahya, was basically refuting Darwinism and saying that you know, evolution is deceitful. And so um, this is, there are many more books, many more discussions. And so we're in the really um, grappling here. This is a very important subject, and I hope to convince you that, um, you know, that we need, this is just the beginning of a journey, a scientific journey to understand um, both Islam and evolution together. Um, so it was in 2009, as I told you, I was practicing these separately, and McGill had sponsored a symposium on Islam and evolution, where they had tried to ask students, Muslim students, well, what do you think about evolution? And there were several researchers that they brought internationally uh, to have this first kind of this symposium in 2009. And my colleague, Anila Asgar, uh, who was organizing the symposium, said, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a Muslim and an evolutionary biologist at the same time? Oh, but there's Ahab next door. Let's, uh, let's, let's ask him to give a talk. And so for the first time in my, my entire life, I had to actually bring these two together. And it really scared me because I hadn't really probed these two sides of my personality in my life uh, critically. And, um, and when I did, I'm, I, would, I have to say, I actually came out, I thought I was going to come out a non-believer. That was what I thought I was going to come out as but I surprisingly came out a stronger believer. And I will tell you why as I go through my presentation. Okay, so then that led to more discussions, uh, you know, a, a big public debate in London, and it was 900 people. We, 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 we asked questions and other discussions have been going on now for the last 10 years, trying to figure out um, what's the relationship between these two. And that led to the creation at McGill, of the McGill Center of Islam and Science to tackle these tough types of issues, okay? Okay, so let's start. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna try and go through some common myths about evolution, okay? So we'll just step one myth at a time and go through, and hopefully we can make sense of this really difficult topic, okay? Um, and I wish, I guess, I, I guess it would, we wouldn't be able to get through the whole thing if I answered questions, but I'll be happy to take questions before and after, both in Arabic and in English. Okay, so the first myth uh, that we often hear about evolution, and most of you have thought, is that, well, you know, evolution is only a theory, right? Maybe just put up your hands who've heard this. Evolution is only a theory. Okay, so it's a common myth, right? Well, let's, so let's define evolution. Let's actually talk about what evolution is, okay? And in the very broadest sense, right, evolution is just anything that changes over time, right? Anything that changes over time, that's evolution. So that means clothes can evolve, our fashion evolves, cars evolve over time, uh, our language evolves over time. Anything that changes over time is considered to be evolution in the very broad sense, just change over time. But often, when we talk about the science of evolution, so myself, my colleague Yusuf, um, and others in the biology department here, when we, we think about evolution, we talk about biological evolution. When we talk about biological evolution, it has a very specific meaning. And that meaning is descent with modification of all organisms from common ancestors. Okay? That means from a common things that descend from a common ancestor and they change. So it's descent with modification from common ancestors. And we'll talk about that in a second. 
In fact, if you think about with Darwin, most people associate um, Darwin with the theory of natural selection. But in fact, one of Darwin's at first, when The Origin of Species was published in 1859, in fact, the greatest discovery of his or the greatest insight that he has that all of life is connected. That was really the kind of um, great insight that he had and it's connected in a branching like diagram. So here you have the common ancestor and there are descendants and each with these descendants, there's modification. Okay? And there was descent with modification from common ancestors. That was one of Darwin's greatest insights. Okay? And when we think about uh, evolution as a theory or a fact, the evidence for this biological evolution, this descent with modification from common ancestors, is so overwhelming that it's a fact, okay? In this part of evolution, this is the fact. And I'm gonna go through why it's a fact. I'll show you evidence of why this is a fact. All right. Okay, so let's do an experiment together. The idea is that if what I'm saying is true, so if biological evolution is a fact, then when we look at all of species, there should be evidence that reflect this common descent. There should be shared characteristics that reflect that things actually descended from a common ancestor. Okay? And the first, of course, is genes. And the idea, as Darwin had presented, descent with modification from common ancestors, is that every single living thing on Earth shares at least some genes together. Okay? One example is 18S ribosomal RNA, and there are others. But with these genes, you can actually build an entire tree of life and connect every single living thing on Earth. Okay? So we can look to the genes as reflecting common descent. What about particular characteristics? Well, um, there are specific genes, it turns out, and one of the greatest discoveries, this is uh, of, of my own field, it's called evolutionary developmental biology, or otherwise known as EvoDevo, is that there are certain genes that are shared across all animals. And this is a gene that uh, regulates eye development. It's called PAC6, or the eyeless gene. And it shows that, you know, even we would have never thought this, this is something that evolutionary biologists would have never dreamed of, just even 40 years ago, that the eyes of flies, these compound eyes of flies, that the way they're designed, and the eyes of vertebrates, and especially humans, um, these are camera eyes. These are completely different. You know, they're built in a completely different way than the compound eyes of vertebrates. Yet that we never would have thought that they shared similar genes. Okay? And if you look across the animal tree of life, uh, these genes are not only shared between, you know, um, uh, you could pick any of these. And this PAC6 gene is, is in all of these animals, no matter which one you pick. So if you pick a mouse, a fly, or a squid, they all have this gene. So I can show you a diagram of the genetic code of this gene, and you can see the dots, in the, so this is the code of humans, right here for this PAC6 gene, and the dots indicate similarity. So when it's conserved, you can see that there are very few changes in this gene across so many different things, across humans, mice, chicken, fish, frogs, and as you go on, this is the squid, so this is the mice and the human, and this is the squid and the fly, and you can see that it's highly similar. So they share a very strong genetic code for this gene that regulates eye development. And in one of kind of what we call the Hollywood experiments, 
in the field, in the field I do, do research in, what uh, a Swiss biologist by the name of Walter Gehring, what he did is he took the gene from a mouse and he turned it on during the development of a fly. Okay? So he took the eye gene of, 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 a, of a mouse and he turned it on on the wing of a fly and he managed to get an eye to grow on the wing of a fly. Okay? This is a Hollywood experiment. The other, the reverse, they actually did, he also did the reverse. He took the, the, the gene from a fly and then he overexpressed it in the, during the development of a frog and he got eyes to grow on different parts of the body of a frog. And so this was amazing, right? This shows that there is uh, similarity and common descent both in the genes and in the genes that regulate certain traits in different animals. Okay. Let's do another experiment coming from my own research. And this is work that I've done on super soldier ants. So what you're seeing here, okay, this is a regular worker ant, and this is a super soldier ant. And this is the head, these are the mandibles over here, and this is the body. So you can see how massive it is. There's no way you could miss it. When it pops out in the colony, there is no way you could miss this super soldier ant, okay? And these ants have three kinds of workers. They have the workers that I just showed you. This is a normal soldier, and that's a super soldier over here, again. Is it possible to again have the lights so they can see the, the pictures a bit more clearly? Just a little bit, just here on this, uh, this part, if we can just close it down, just to be great. Okay, so what we did is we looked at the tree of life of this group of ants, okay, from the genus Phydoli. And what you could see, okay, right over here, these are all these, all these species, what they share in common, okay, are these soldiers. So they all have the soldier ant, okay? But only two groups of ants, this one here, this species, Phydolirea, has a naturally occurring super soldier, and in Phydoli optusospinosa also has, they have these naturally occurring super soldiers like I told you. Now, if there was common descent, if there's evidence for common descent, right? What I discovered, what we were able to discover is that if you go to all of these species that don't have super soldiers, that don't have them at all, and you hit them with a very high dose of hormone in a very short window of their, developmental, of their development, so when they're young and they're still developing as eggs, if you hit them, what you can do is you can actually get these species to grow super soldiers, even though they don't normally have them. So what it means is that even on the outside, okay, if, when you look on the outside, there are things that are hidden in your genes that reflect your ancestry, okay? So uh, we did this across the whole genus, and no matter what species we went to, we, if we hit it in that high dose of hormone in that early part of development, we could make these things, we could induce the development of super soldiers. And so there's the ancestor that had a super soldier. Somewhere early in the evolution, you lost the super soldier, but you kept the potential to produce a super soldier. And then later, we can activate this potential in any species. So the common descent, what ties all of life together, is genes, genes that regulate those traits, and even there's a hidden potential in all animals to produce traits even, that, even though they've been lost, there's still the potential to produce them, okay? And so you can imagine 
as I'm trying to make sense of this of myself, you know, just you, you, you see it and you just all of a sudden you hit this thing and you get a super soldier and you're like, oh my God, what is this, right? <laughs> you, you, you have to face this fact and we have to reconcile it with the truth. Okay. Okay, so what is theory? So if descent with modification, the idea that all of life is connected and we all descend from common ancestors, that's a fact. There's so much evidence pointing towards it, no matter what we do to manipulate the systems of biology and all these different animals, it always points to the same fact. So then what is theory? Why do people call evolutionary, a th why, do, why do we say the theory of evolution? Well, the, it's really that we, what we argue about are the details. The details of how the history has happened. What's, how is this species related? Sometimes more data comes out and the species, while it's not related quite to this one, it's related more to this one. I'm just gonna switch the slide. And we also, we argue about the mechanisms. So the idea is that we, we know that um, there's variation that occurs, that there's natural selection, that there's genetic drift, and how organisms are related. We don't argue about these things. We all know they exist, but what we argue about is which one is more important and how they occur. That's, where we, that's why we call it a theory. So in terms of variation, what produces different characteristics in different individuals? Is it our genes? Is it our environment? Is it random? Is it non-random? Is natural selection, which is more important? Is it natural selection, sexual selection, artificial selection? Is selection working on the level of individuals, groups, species? Uh, genetic drift, is that more important than natural selection? And again, who is related to who? For a long time, we thought that plants were more related to us, to, to humans, uh, to animals, than fungi. And then we found out, no, it's the other way around. Fungi are more related to us than plants, okay? Which was a, a big surprise in evolution about 20 years ago. And so these kinds of surprises, these are the things, the small details that change. And these, this is what the theory is. We're still trying to work out the details. So there is fact and theory in evolution. Okay. Next, and the second myth, another myth that occurs that we have to try and figure out how we're gonna, we're gonna debunk this. Okay, the idea that evolution is linear or that evolution equals progress. And so this is a very hard thing to, to, to debunk. What I'm gonna do is a small experiment, okay? And this is what I call the curse of the scala naturae, all right? And here, let's just look at this experiment. Okay, I'm just gonna turn on the Wi-Fi. Let's hope this works. So, because uh, I have to access the internet. Come on. Let's go Apple. All right. Uh-huh, what do we have here? Yes, okay. So if we go back. Okay, so if you just go to Google, right? And you just type in the word evolution. Just type the word evolution in and you hit the images, right? You type in Google in Google and Google images and this is what pops out. Who has seen this before? Put up your hand if you've seen this before, this diagram. Ah, oh, come on. Okay. Yes, that's what I think has to happen. Okay. Okay. Okay, and it should, yes, you see it? Yeah, 
Okay, now we're rolling, right? So you just go into Google, okay? I didn't, I didn't fake this, you can go do it yourself. You type in Google in Google Images, and this is what, who's seen this before? Of course. This is the icon of evolution, the most misleading icon that you will ever come across, okay? This is it, this is when most people think about evolution. They think of this diagram, it's called the monkey to man diagram, okay? This is it, and this is what causes most of the difficulty in thinking about the evolutionary process. Okay, we'll just go back to, here we go. And it's in our everyday lives. You've all seen it. It's in commercials. It's in, our, it's in textbooks. It's in commercials. It's everywhere. Everywhere you look, you find this diagram. Newspapers. I mean, you name it. In fact, I'll tell you, I called the plumber one day because my sink was broken in Canada. The plumber comes to me and says, oh, I need a, a parking permit. So I go down to the doorman. I go to the plumber, right? I go to the, as I approach the plumber's car to put the parking permit, I look closer, and there <laughs> I find <laughs> the monkey to man diagram. Like, oh my God, it even got to the plumbers, right? It's everywhere, okay? And it's everywhere in our everyday lives, okay? And um, as I showed you earlier, this was, of course, uh, on the poster of have Muslims misunderstood evolution. It was, you know, posted on the, the poster. And in the McGill Symposium for Islam and Science, it was also posted all over the place. And of course, I mean, this kind of vision of evolution is not true, okay? It gives the idea that we literally transferred, we transformed from primates into humans. It was a, literally, a literal linear transformation from primates into humans. And this comes, this idea of this linear idea of evolution comes from Aristotle. It goes back as far as the ancient Greeks and, and from Aristotle. And it was depicted, um, and you'll see it, it keeps recurring over and over again. Um, of course, from the plumber from Montreal in Canada uh, to the ancient, uh, you know, ancient thinkers, Muslims in the Golden Age, to Renaissance thinkers in, in, in medieval Europe. And this is um, what we're seeing here. This is um, basically the scale nature from Charles Bonnet. The œuvre d'histoire naturelle et de philosophie from 1781. And it's also been called the great chain of being, where everything is seen as a kind of a linear scale of progress, right? Kind of a stepwise or linear fashion. And according to this, you can see, of course, that you start off with what are, th what are thought to be lower animals and then humans on top. And if according to this, you know, if we think about the evolution of multicellularity, how multicellular organisms came to be. So the multicellular organisms are the animals, the plants, and the fungi, the animals, the plants, and the fungi. What you can see here, if we follow this, it's quite amusing, because what you see is you go from um, here, um, ethereal matter, air, water, pure earth, compound earth, sulfur and bitumens, malleable metals, semi-metals, vitriols, crystalline salts, unorganized stones. And then this is the leap from inanimate to animate life. You go from stones composed of layers, fibers, and filaments, and you jump to the truffle, right? According to this, this is the big leap from inanimate to animate life, right? This is the truffle. No wonder it's so bloody expensive when you eat this stuff, right? So there you go, mushrooms, molds, and you keep going up to plants, insects, selfish, reptiles, fish, up to birds, and then, of course, all the way to man. Okay, so according to this, 
it would be this kind of linear thing where you start again from down here, you would go to fungi, to plants, and then to animals. And if you were to flip it, it would like the monkey to man diagram, you would literally have a transformation where a fungi is transforming into a plant and a plant that's transforming into an animal. Okay, of course, that's not the way we think about evolution. We think about it more like a tree, right? Think about it in the way like a family tree, the way we, you know, we're related to our cousins, our uncles, our aunts, and going down all the way to our common ancestors. And so the way we think about you know, the way that this started is not a transformation uh, from uh, fungi into plants and then into animals. And like I said, it's a big surprise actually. It turns out that we're more related to fungi than we are to plants. And you had an ancestor that was probably single-celled and then this gave rise, when it split, this common ancestor was neither a plant, nor was it a fungi, nor was it an animal. It split from this common ancestor, and then the plants evolved multicellularity on their own. They became, you know, the organisms they are today. And then they split again. The fungi became, this ancestor was neither a fungi nor an animal. It split, became a fungi, and became an animal. And... The way we think about this, we would say the same thing about the monkey-to-man diagram. The monkey-to-man diagram that I showed you literally is asserts that we went from gorilla to chimps to humans, a literal transformation from gorilla to chimp to human. And as crazy as we would think that a plant would transform into a fungi, would transform into a, an animal, that sounds kind of ridiculous. It's the same kind of thing. We just, it, it's kind of ridiculous to think of that type of linear transformation. And so we think then that, of course, these were common ancestors that had shared characteristics, like you would share characteristics with your cousin or you know, greater. But this ancestor here between chimps and humans was neither at this point a chimp or a human. When they split, this line evolved into chimps and this line evolved into humans. Okay? And so that diagram then, really you have to, it's, it's the most, Iconic diagram, but the thing is, it shows that evolution is really not a linear process. It's a branching tree of life. And as we are related to chimps and gorillas, we're related to all of life. All of life is connected into a tree. Okay? So, and that comes down to descent with modification uh, uh, from common ancestors. Okay, so evolution is not linear, and that's a very important lesson. The other myth um, that often comes up is evolution is completely random. How could something that is completely random give rise to such order? How is something that is completely random give rise to everything that we see today? It's impossible. People say if random processes, you know, it would take a random process X billions of billions and billions of years, far more than the age of the earth, to give rise to all of the order and diversity we see on Earth. Okay? But then again, um, this is, evolution is not, um, a it's not a completely random process. Okay? It's the, the natural, what we, we, we've done it ourselves, natural and artificial selection are not random. Now, artificial selection, let me just tell you about artificial selection because that's what we're used to you know, that's what we're used to thinking about. So humans, to make our, our crops edible, to make them, you know, to make things. This is the, let me just show you, this is the ancestor of corn. 
It's called teosinte. This doesn't look very delicious, does it? Right? But we've been, for years, selecting the things that look more edible, that have more protein, that look are fatter, are more juicy, that look nicer. This is basically, and within just a very short period of time, we were able to evolve this into this, okay? Just through the process of selection. And so artificial selection is, is a non-random process. It can be controlled. And in very short periods, we can actually evolve this into that. I'll show you the ancestor of tomatoes. Again, you wouldn't, oh yeah, I forgot, I can't show you. you wouldn't, this doesn't look very edible again, and this is the wild tomato. It's not something we're used to eating. But again, we've been selecting. Whenever there's tomatoes that come out, they come out with different variants, and you pick the juiciest one, and you just keep picking it and picking it, and we turn them into these nice tomatoes, right? This is what we're used to eating today, and this process happened in a very short period of time. Okay, right? In less than a thousand years. So it's quite amazing. Uh, it can be controlled. So it's not a random process. Evolution is not a random process. Okay? Um, there are some random elements to evolution, but natural and artificial and sexual selection uh, are very important forces in evolution. Nobody denies that they exist, and that's why evolution can happen on the time scale of our, on the age of the Earth. Okay, another myth. This is one of my favorites now because I get to talk about ants and I get to show you the beauty of ants. And uh, this is that, well, if people say to me, Ahab, Ahab, if evolution is change over time, then we should be able to see it. And there's a myth that says that fossil species are almost the same as modern species. They say, you show us the fossils, the fossils don't look all that different from modern species. Okay, But this is uh, the most... Uh, the oldest ant fossil that's out there. Now, for those of you who are not aware, when we think about ants, ants are actually come from wasps. The ancestors of ants are wasps, okay? And bees and ants are cousins, okay? And so the oldest fossil that we consider to be an ant actually has a mix of wasp and ant-like characteristics. So it has a very wasp-like antennae over here, because usually ants have a very bent elbow antennae. It's very bent. This has a very rounded antennae, and it has a stinger over here. Okay, so this is, this is a very a mix. But when we look at modern species, we see that they're quite different from the fossil, right? So this is kind of your typical garden ant that you see. Um, you know, most, uh, most you'll, you'll see them in Abu Dhabi, but check this one out. This, okay, you can go to antweb.org, and you can stare at these ants all day. Look at this guy. Isn't that beautiful? Look at how different that guy is. Look at this guy, right? Amazing. Or this guy, right? This species. Or that species. Now, or that guy, right? I mean, it's amazing. All of this has changed through the process of evolution over time. Okay? Check this guy out with its long mandibles. All right? And here is, I bet you, you never knew that there was a blue ant out there. Okay? And this is for the woman now. I bet you didn't know there was a gold ant out there either. Right? So this is uh, quite amazing, the diversity that you see that you change uh, in the fossils. And it just keeps going on and on and on. And it just means that we have to go out in nature, look, and you'll see change and variation both within populations, between species, all around us. 
And even if you look at different fossils that are earlier, so this is about 150 million years ago, if you look at fossils from 50 million years ago, you see substantial change. Okay? So the more familiar we are with nature and familiar we are with groups, for me, I see nature, I see evolution, I see it through the ants. So there's lots of change going on, even within a group and closely related species. We can see transitional fossils, characteristics for ants and wasps, and change within groups. Okay, the other thing is, another myth that's associated with evolution, I want to have to speed up here, uh, traits are irreducibly complex. So th there's one particular um, argument that says, well, if you may, if God created, or if evolution created something of an eye, as perfect as an eye, well, if you take something out of the eye, how is the eye going to function, right? And so it had to be, you know, how could evolution have produced something as perfect as the eye, okay? And so, you know, of course, if we look at the eye, you know, if you remove the lens or if you remove some part of the retina or the optic nerve, it stops to function. But the truth is that we don't need, it doesn't have to be perfect to provide some advantage to the individual that has them. And if you look across species, these are different species. Here you look at, we're looking at a flatworm. Um, this is a, um, over here, these are different snails and, and different kinds of things. Worms, other kinds of uh, mollusks, and you can see that actually their eyes, they're all, they have little bits and pieces of the eye. And each time either they could provide a little, like a pigment, they provide some light, is an advantage to those individuals and others. So you don't need to have a perfectly functioning thing, right, for it to provide at least some advantage for it to be selected. Like you select the corn or the, or the, the tomatoes, this provides the, enough an advantage. You just need a little bit of things to function. Okay, this will cap off. We're getting close to capping off the evolution part, and then we'll get into the uh, you know, interpretations in the Quran. So myth, evolution equals Darwinism. So when we think about Darwin, we think that this equals evolution. Now Darwin made substantial contributions to evolution. Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, was actually talking about evolution. Lamarck, who came before Darwin, was talking about evolution, but they were talking about evolution change over time. Okay? So the idea of evolution has been around for a very long time, before Darwin, and also now since Darwin, okay, there has been tremendous progress that has been made. Of course, since Darwin, we have now the discovery of DNA. I mean, he would have a party today, Darwin. Uh, genomics is taken apart, we have gene networks, we have ideas of epigenetics, of how the environment influences DNA, dormant genes, conservation, DNA cloning, genome editing. My point is that it's evolved so fast, or there's so much known since Darwin, so much change that has happened. The 21st century is the century of biology. And if the Muslim world, okay, doesn't embrace the idea of evolution, right, it's going to be left behind. We will remain as technology consumers. We will never become technology producers. Biology really is at the forefront, not only of the you know, physical, like the biological sciences, but it's merging now with the physical sciences. Chips, microchips, the next you know, range of microchips are thought to be biologically based. 
and so on and so forth. So there is really, it's important to think about, um, you know, what's to come and not only to past. Evolution is not only Darwin, okay? It's Darwin made, he's the kind of, he made super amazing advances, but there is much more to it than that. Okay. Okay, let's take a deep breath. All right. <laughs> That's just to give you an idea now of common myths of evolution and what we can understand about evolution, some common misconceptions. Now let's think about a little bit about what the Quran says about evolution and how somebody like myself who gets exposed to these, to, to these theories in the lab can actually reconcile his, what he sees every day in nature. Okay, so the myth. The, the creation account in the Quran is inconsistent with evolution. As I wrote, we had uh, Jerry Coyne, as I showed you, he said, faith and fact, those are incompatible. Okay. All right, let's see what the Holy Quran says about evolution. Now, you know, again, this is all of this. I mean, I mean, research in evolutionary biology is incredibly active. People here in NYU Abu Dhabi are at the forefront. I mean, it's, in, it's really an exciting time to be an evolutionary biologist. But it also, there's so much work to be done in trying to interpret the Quran. There's lots, I mean, we need lots of help. And we'll talk about that more as we go along. Uh, there are many modern commentators that have tried to interpret with regards to evolution of what the Quran is saying. Here are some, of course, the names. Mustafa Mahmoud, Fatima Jackson, who will be speaking, Amir Yassin. Many, many people have tried to interpret the Quran in the light of, of evolutionary theory. Let me just show you this, some paragraphs here. So what I did is I read the Quran from start to finish, focusing simply as an evolutionary biologist. I wanted to read every single word and see whether I would come out with something consistent or inconsistent with my knowledge of evolution. That's what I did. So I wasn't trying to read it from any other perspective except from the perspective of evolutionary biology. And again, I'm not an, a, a theologian. I was just trying to read it as a practicing Muslim who's a scientist trying to make sense of the world. Okay? And so we go to Surah An-Nur, which is quite, uh, this is uh, Surah An-Nur 35, Surah number 35. So for those of you who are not familiar, the Quran is organized in a series of surahs. From the start to finish, it's not in any law, it's in, it's in the order of the length of the surahs going from start to finish. And the second number here, 45, is the ayah. So in the number of each surah is broken down into what are called ayahs. And so what we see here is in Surah An-Nur, the Quran says, and Allah has created every animal from water. Of them, there are some that creep on their bellies and some that walk on two legs and some that walk on four. Allah creates what he wills for verily Allah has power over all things. We know for fact in evolutionary biology that all of life did in fact start from the water. We can interpret this in many ways, but at least it points to the unity, okay, of where the creation came from. Okay, that all creatures were created from water. Okay, and it refers to the only, of course, creature that walks on two legs, so of course humans, and then to the other creatures that have other modes of locomotion. Okay, what about the creation of humans? And we could go on and on, but I just wanted to at least point to you some of the things that stand out. Okay, what about the creation of humans? So I went through all the surahs and I pulled out, okay, every time they mentioned the creation of man, I went to each surah and I wrote it down. 
And what you see is that there are a number of surahs that talk about creation of humans from water, from earth, from dust, from clay, from a leech-like blood clot, from a sperm drop, from flesh, and from a single soul. So there are many, you know, in the Quran, it talks about the creation of man from many different sources. And then there are some key surahs, like Surah An-Nuh, okay, um, which talks about them now, in how can we place all of these different things together, these different sources, let me just go back, how can we put all of these sources, water, dust, earth, clay, a leech-like blood clot, sperm drop, flesh, a single soul, how do we make sense of all of this? But then it's clear in several surahs, Surah An-Nuh, it says here, what is the matter with you that ye are not conscious of Allah's majesty, seeing that he has created you in diverse stages? Okay? And Allah has produced you from the earth growing gradually. Okay? The Arabic is on this side. Um, and so, you know, the Arabic language is quite rich and complex. Of course, this needs linguistic scholars because each word can be, you know, you know, interpreted many different ways. But to me, what I see here, diverse stages, and the earth growing from gradually, what that says is that all of these, well, let me just keep going. Let me just keep going. Hold your tongue, Ahab. Hold your tongue. So here, in Surah Al-Ka'f, okay, the Surah of the Cave, dost thou deny him who created thee out of dust? And then, you see, then, okay, out of a sperm drop, then fashion thee into a man. Okay? It, it's, you see, saying in diverse stages, in stages, and then he doesn't say that this was all just a single moment of time. Okay? And so, these diverse stages, just kind of in a stepwise manner, growing gradually, saying that these steps occurred, this, then that, then this, okay? And in terms of time, in Surah Al-Hajj, he says here, each day of his is like a thousand years of your reckoning. Time in the Quran doesn't have the same implications. Time is, is very relative in the Quran, okay? I mean, as we know, many of you, for, for those Muslims, the 24-hour a day we refer to us as a 24-hour period. A day for Allah is, is a much more, you know, much more larger period of time. Not only that, but we're, we, we can't restrict our thinking to thinking about, I mean, it, it would be, if God is an omnipotent power, then of course, Allah can go in the past, in the present, in the future. Time is completely broken down relative, relative to us. So it's not a problem in terms of the timing, okay? So, um, what this sort of implies to me then is that, um, that Allah, it's consistent with evolution in the sense that it wasn't a single instance of creation, that these were done in multiple stages. The Quran states clearly that God created you know, all of life, including humans. Okay? But it doesn't give details beyond these things about how it just gives these slight hints that, you know, that they were done in these kind of stepwise or, or sort of stage-like manner. Okay, and then in Surah Al-Sad, this is an important one, Behold thy Lord uh, said to the angels, I'm about to create man from clay. Okay, when I have fashioned him, so when I have fashioned him, okay, and breathed into him my spirit, fall ye down in prostration unto, unto him. Okay, 
And so, again, it's when I have fashioned him. Again, the creation of man is a physical sense and breathing into him his spirit. When that actually happened, this is the interesting thing. When that happened, how that happened, the insertion of a soul into a biological being, the creation of human, this is, uh, you know, suggests that the, the, maybe the physical presence doesn't, just because you look in the form of a human, doesn't necessarily mean that that was human at that time. It was when he, Allah breathed into him the spirit. That's when he becomes human. And this is a very important, uh, this is very important. Surat al-Mu'minun, we created man from a breed, solala of clay. Okay, solala, a breed. Okay, so many breeds of clay, many breeds of man. Okay, a solala, a chain, a kind of a, that's what solala means. It's kind of a, a breed or a race or a kind of a chain that comes together. And so there are, you know, this can be interpreted in many ways, but it leaves open the interpretation that there were many breeds. And from one breed came the humans and Allah breathed into him his spirit. Okay, so there's lots as you're reading it. As an evolutionary biologist, the idea is you take it all together when I was reading it, and of course, I'm, again, I'm not an Islamic scholar, but this is just my interpretation as an evolutionary biologist and practicing Muslim. It just says that humans were created gradually and in multiple stages. And in that sense, the Quran is consistent with evolutionary, thinking about evolutionary biology. Okay? And Again, I wanted to say there's so much. This is not a final interpretation. Like I said, there are many modern com you know, commentators. This is just you know, my personal interpretation. But again, the idea is that there's lots of work that has to be done. You could hang, like I said, the Arabic word is quite complex. In Surat Al-Alaqa, al -alaqa, okay, you have, this, this, this is when I read it, I was quite, uh, it took me, I spent a long, long time thinking about this one word that can be interpreted in many ways. Read in the name of thy Lord and cherisher who created, created man out of a leech-like cloth. And so this is, al-alaqa, al-alaqa is, you know, has been interpreted in many ways. It, sometimes you can use al-alaqa to think about a stage in human development. A bunch like, a, you know, basically when cells are just coming together. A leech-like clot or a blood-like clot when things are sticking together. Many Islamic scholars have interpreted it as just things sticking together, basically. And if you think of it from an evolutionary perspective, you know, uh, some of the most uh, important theories in evolution, here is uh, John Maynard Smith who wrote The Major Transitions in Evolution. If you look about basically how um, rep, you know, uh, molecular replication, RNAs, prokaryotes, how protists came, societies began, they all became by the sticking together of solitary entities into a group that form a new higher level individual. This is how multi, you think about multicellularity, how plants, fungi, and animals came together. They were just single cells that came, they stuck together to form a new type of individual, right? Could alaqa, could alaq, awl alaqa, this clot, be referring to this? There's lots of work that needs to be done. We need to, gather, we need to get together with Islamic scholars. We need to get with other scientists and our linguistic experts. There's lots of work to be done. And as we expand our knowledge of evolution and we start reading the Quran, you know, the interpretations, you know, can also expand on even single words. Okay. Let's move on. 
Okay? And I'm sure there's going to be lots of discussion and debate, and I'm happy to, to continue. Okay. Here. Evolution is a Western theory. So I was in just visiting uh, Jordan recently, and I was visiting my mom's side of the family. Right? And, um, and I was telling them, I'm going to give this lecture on Darwin and evolution. They're saying, oh, yeah, well, Darwin, that's nice. That's all for West. That's the Western world. Okay? That has nothing to do with us, right? We're assigned. This, this actually brings up a joke. I wasn't planning to tell this joke, but I'll tell it anyway. Okay? So <laughs> a young boy goes to his mother and his father, goes to his, um, his mom. He says, mom, how did life begin? And she said, well, you know, there's Darwin, there's apes. Darwin transferred, you know, got transformed from an ape into a, like the monkey to man diagram, he came into an ape and a monkey. And he goes to the father and he says, oh, you know, dad, I don't understand, my, you know, how did life begin? You know, and the dad says, well, there's Adam and there's Eve and there's the Quran and, you know, and there, God created all of living life. And he goes back and then he says to his dad, but, you know, mom told me that, you know, we come from monkeys and there's Darwin and there's evolution. And now you're telling me that there's Adam and Eve and, he said, you know, son, that's, that's how your mother's side of the family came to be. And my side of the family came to be in this way, right? So, <laughs> okay. So, all right, I wasn't planning to tell it, but, you know, this is it. So, the idea is, of course, the, this, this kind of split not only represents the mother and the father, but it represents cultural splits, right? Um, as the, the Muslim world has yet to accept evolution, has yet to accept thinking about evolution, and so we're stuck with these really extreme things that are not able to come together. But if we go back to the golden Islamic age, what we find is something quite interesting. We find that there are many Islamic scholars that actually thought about evolution. You have here um, Ibn Khaldun, Ibn Maskavay, Ibn al-Arabi, Rumi, and these are just a few. There are actually many, many Islamic scholars from the golden age that wrote and spoke about evolution. Now, Paul Broderman has written, uh, wrote some articles, and this is just, now this needs a lot of work and a lot of analysis, but some, um, you know, the kind of the conclusion from most of these, um, the writings of these scholars is that they form, they, they've taken a lot from Aristotle, and their writings take the shape of the scala naturae. Okay, so they have this idea of evolution, but it's again this kind of progress of evolution that we haven't, you know, doesn't really quite fit our modern notions of evolution. But there are two Islamic scholars that really stand out in my mind. That's Ibn Sina. Ibn Sina was one of the first people to come up with the idea. And we usually accredit these ideas, of course, to Charles Lyell, this notion that as the age with the, the layers of the rock, as you can see here, these layers of rock that are different, that as you go down, this means that these are older layers of rock. Okay, and it was Charles Lyell who started to actually build, you know, ideas between these. Well, actually, Ibn Sina had come up with this idea, a, a form of this idea, a precept of this idea, um, um, in about uh, 1037. Geological time is evidence from layers of the earth strata, the idea that the earth strata indicate that the earth is inconceivably old, right? And that was a, a landmark that was very important for Darwin's theories, and that was uh, an, an advance by Ibn Sina that was quite important. Another one, uh, another Islamic scholar that uh, points out is Al-Jahiz, okay, from 820 AD. 
And he was different. He didn't just write about the scala nature, this kind of progress that we had talked about, but now he was really starting to talk about how animals struggle with their environment, which is an element in Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection. He wrote in his Kitab al-Hayawan, the book of animals, um, animals engage in a struggle for existence, for resources, to avoid being eaten, and to breed. Environmental factors influence organisms to develop new characteristics to ensure survival, thus transforming into new species. Animals that survive to breed can pass on their successful characteristics to offspring. That is quite uh, an advance in 18, at 820 AD, you know, because now it's actually relating to the evolution of animals, to their struggle for existence, and passing on their characteristics. Now we have, of course, we can't, you know, we cannot just, now, uh, it's easy from a modern perspective to go and look at it and say, okay, this is, he meant natural selection. Again, it's gonna take scholars, historical scholars of Islam, to go back and look at the context in which was written, how was this written, what's the, you know, the, the Arabic that was used for this language, to be, to try and really see if he, as close to this as possible. Again, lots of work needs to be done, but this is really impressive. It's not just a Western theory. The golden age of Islam were thinking about evolution. They were writing about evolution. They were trying to make sense of it uh, and how it relates to the origin of humans. Okay, and my last, I, what I hope to just sort of end off with is that evolution is only an abstract theory with little importance to our everyday lives. Okay? Um, I already gave you one example that, you know, we don't want to be technology consumers, we want to be technology producers. Um, if Muslims want to be moving in that direction, they're going to have to embrace evolution. But I teach a course at McGill, it's called Evolution in Society. And what we explore is notions of evolution in race, evolution in religion, evolution in politics, evolution in economics, evolution in medicine, evolution in agriculture, evolution in gender, and evolution in intelligence. Evolution, it turns out, affects every aspect of our lives, okay? But in subtle ways that we're not necessarily aware of, okay? And like any other science, evolution can be used for good, just like nuclear energy. It can be used to make nuclear bombs, but it can also be used to make nuclear energy. Can be, evolution can be used for good and for bad. And if those who are aware of evolutionary theory, there are more people who have died because of misunderstandings of evolutionary theory than from a nuclear bomb. Okay, and we can go, I'm happy to discuss that with you later, um, but I'll give you an example of bad. So evolutionary theory has been used for justification as racism against Muslims, all right? And this comes from this idea, of course, of the survival of the fittest. And it comes, this is a book that was written, unfortunately I don't have time to show the video, but there was a book written here, the, the Myth of the Muslim Tides, Do Immigrants Threaten the West? And it's this idea, okay, it's called Eurabia. And I just, I, I invite everybody again to go to Google and type in Eurabia and see what you find. But basically the argument of Eurabia, it's actually a, a, a theory that's taking hold in the West. Um, and it says here, it goes as follows. Muslims, unlike other earlier immigrants reproduce at an unusually fast pace. Okay? All right. With fertility rates much higher than exhausted Western populations, 
Muslims will become the majority in European countries and North American cities. This is dangerous because these immigrants are more loyal to Islam than the host countries. Islam is not just a religion, it is a political ideology they intend to act upon. Moderate Muslims and extremists share a common belief system and they will destroy the freedoms and traditions of the West. Okay? This is an argument. There's manifestos that are all built, uh, in, that, are, that are being built and, and focused. These are some quotes that I took from the myth of the Muslim tides. These are politicians, writers, academics that have written the following. Europe will have a Muslim majority by the end of the 21st century at the very latest. Oriana Falaci, the sons of Allah, they multiply like rats. The greatest of all strengths of radical Islam is that it has a demography on its side. The Western culture against which it has declared a holy war cannot possibly match the capacity of traditional Muslim societies when it comes to reproduction. Okay? Demog demographically, demographically, the enormous fertility of Muslim migrants is a threat to the cultural and civilizational equilibrium of an aging Europe. On the continent and elsewhere in the West, Native populations are aging and fading and being supplanted remorselessly by a young Muslim demographic transformation provides a huge comfort zone for the jihad movement to move around it. So this, I know this notion, it sounds a lot like evolution, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like, you know, survival of the fittest. You come in, and immigrants come in, they reproduce at a fast rate, they start replacing the populations of Europe. Okay, and there's a video, but we don't have time to show, I don't have time to show it, but this argument of Eurabia is described very well in Doug Saunders' book, The Myth of the Muslim Tides. And then he goes on to show that, okay, the statistics aren't exactly, it's not true. The statistics aren't, you know, that's not really what's happening. If you look at the demography, they are increasing, but it won't match. Europe will not be Islamic in, in 50 years. Just it, the argument is not there, the numbers. But that's not really the point. Muslims have to be aware of the theory that's being used. I mean, is it really true? It's not, you know, is it possible? Is it really true that even if Muslim migrants, it doesn't matter if the statistics are wrong or not, even if Muslim migrants reproduce at a higher fertility rate, does that necessarily mean that they will change the culture? So will cultural evolution match biological evolution? Well, that's a theoretical question we have to know. If that's not the case, and you know, there, there's, a, there's a whole theory of cultural evolution, and it's built on this idea of memes right, which are units of cultural inheritance. And they, they, these memes are supposed to be like genes. So memes are the unit of cultural inheritance which behave like true replicators. And the more like genes they are, the more the meme theory works, okay? So the idea is that cultural evolution spreads like these memes, they're like packets of information, okay? And other scholars have written in, in, in evolutionary theory, they have analogized Islam to a carnivorous meme. Some meme that's just nasty. When, you, when it comes in, it'll eat up all other memes in the culture, okay? And they've compared Buddhism to a herbivorous meme complex. Okay, this is, uh, and so we need to know, we need to be aware of these arguments. We need to, these are, arguments are being used to justify and support the hypothesis of Eurabia, okay? Which then leads to policies, actual political policies, and other kinds of thinking that suppress and are used to be, you know, are basically are used to support racism in against migrants, Muslim migrants in Western countries. And of course, one has to be aware that these arguments 
we need to be aware, we need to be, you need to know what's happening. And the idea that this meme theory doesn't take into account the complex interaction between genes and the environment. And so we can easily falsify it. We can easily talk about, we, we need to do tests, we need to see, is it really true? Does biological and cultural evolution, are they, do they work together or do they not? These are all important questions. Okay, last thing, an example of the good, how we can use evolution for the good now. And I use an example from evolution in medicine, and then I'll end off. Okay? So evolution can be used to fight against infectious diseases. Evolution of viruses, virulence, host switching, antibiotic resistance, personalized medicine. It can be used to be fight cancer and diabetes. So how do we stop this? We're finding new antibiotics. The bacteria are evolving, and they're evolving new antibiotics. And as you know, there's now more and more the spread of these superbugs. Where do we look? How do we find new antibiotics? Where can we find them? My argument is we can find them in the natural world. We have to be, understand evolution, how species have evolved, where to look. I'm going to do a small exercise. It'll take, take two minutes. I'm going to ask you guys to put up your hands. How many species are there on Earth? Put up your hands if there are 100,000. B, 500,000. C, 1 million. It's okay, don't be shy. I got this wrong the first time, it's all right. D, 2 million. E, 8.7 million. Okay, the answer is, this is known species. There are 2 million known and approximately 2 million known and described species on Earth. Okay, um, 8.7 million is one projection. The projections can go up all the way to 64. Okay, another question. Which of the following groups of organisms have the greatest number of species? Put up your hand. A, if you say bacteria. B, if you say protists. C, if you say fungi. D, plants. E, animals. The answer is, this is the number, greatest number of species. The answer is animals. Not biomass, the number of described species. Okay, last question. Which of the following group of animals have the greatest number of species? A, mammals. B, insects. C, flatworms. D, mollusks. The answer is insects. If you look at the pie of life, right? The greatest number of described species by far is, you know, the insects. And the famous evolutionary biologist said, uh, J.B.S. Haldane said, God had an inordinate fondness of beetles, right? <laughs> of, all the, of all the insects, there's an incredible number of beetles out there. But let me just show you this next slide. If we study evolution in the natural world, okay, what, this is a, a picture of an ant, a leaf-cutting ant. They invented agriculture before humans, 10,000, 10,000 millions of years before humans, they invented agriculture. And what they do is they farm fungi, they farm fungus. So they collect the fungus, the leaves, they go out, they cut the leaves, they bring it back to their nests, they use the leaves to farm this fungus. And with the fungus, they eat the fungus, they protect the fungus, they let it grow, but they're also eating the fungus. But they need at the same time to protect themselves against the fungus, and so they grow antibiotics. This is where you see in these leaf cutter ants, they have antibiotics. This is and they've shown to, be, they've shown to be producing actinomycin, antimycin, valinomycin, candesin. Who knows that the next superbug-fighting antibiotic might come from the humble ant?
right? We have to know, we have to, we have to protect the species, we have to study the species, we have to know the evolution of the species. Okay, and I end finally um, with the last kind of, um, this is, if you read The Origin of Species, in the very last paragraph, Darwin is extremely poetic. He's a very humble man. You know, most of us evolutionary biologists who read The Origin of Species sleep at least 10 times. But you get to this last paragraph and it's just incredibly poetic. He says, There is grandeur in this view of life with its several powers, having been gradually breathed by the Creator into a few forms or into one. And that, whilst the planet has gone on cycling, and according to fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms most beautiful and wonderful have been and are being evolved. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute.